All right, and welcome everybody to an episode of the EM Over Easy podcast. I'm your host, Andy Little, introducing this special session that was recorded with myself, Drew, our fourth co-host, John Casey, and some special guests, Molly Estes and Chris Colbert. So this was recorded at ACOP 2020. If you didn't get a chance to see us live, this is one of five discussions that we had at ACP 2020. This will be part one of ISMS with our second part coming out in December. Real quick, we want to remind everybody, we are the official podcast of the ACOAP. So if you'd like to listen to future podcasts by us, they'll be hosted on the ACOP website where you can claim them for CME. And of course, head on over to ACOP.org to look at all the educational activities, research competitions, and membership opportunities of that fine organization. So without further ado, here it is, ISMS Part 1. All right, so let's kind of set the scenario. So we all work clinically and we've all worked shifts where, you know, we come into work, we lay our stuff down, we try to get into our rhythm, right? We pre-gamed well, and you're kind of in the grind of it all. And then you kind of see this patient come past you. And as they're coming past you, you hear that they're not really excited to be here, but they're here, right? And so we've all had this patient where not exactly the belligerent patient that Chris talks about every Friday night, although they might fit this bill, but the patient, you know, comes in willing in a wheelchair and they're yelling at your tech that's wheeling them back. And then you kind of you try to get back to your charting and you know getting everything open and all your computer stuff set and ready. And then you keep hearing this patient in their room over the course of their triage and you hear explicitives and you hear, I wanna say comments and phrases that really aren't appropriate unless if they're probably as drunk as the patient that Chris brought about, not even that they're appropriate then, but. And then, you know, you kind of have, and in your, in your eye, you're like, I, I should probably get up. And so you get up and you kind of start walking over there and then the line gets crossed. Right. And the line for me, when I'm with this patient that we're going to talk about was the patient made a sexist, a racist, and a xenophobic phrase, like three in a row to a, a nurse who is a, a female nurse from the Philippines of a Filipino background. And so you kind of walk in and they've crossed the line and, you know, how, wh- what do you do then? I, I think it, we've all been here where like we've heard patients be belligerent to staff. They'll be belligerent to, to yourself. But at what point, where's the line that you have to take action for? And how do you best go about that? Who's first? Go ahead, Chris. You okay, got it. Chris. Okay. A couple of things. There's a point as adults where you have to accept what you're going into and accept what your outcome and with an expected outcome. As an example, there are some conversations I'm going to have with some individuals. Now, mind you, these are total strangers to us that I'm not going to change your mind. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the conversation is just going to fuel this fire. Like they're not going to say, they're not going to use racial slurs. And then I walk in the room and they're going to say, oh, it's Chris. That has never happened to me before, ever. They just went on with their rant in any capacity. And so if I walk into a room, and usually I walk into the room, it has to do with a resident or a student. If it's a resident or a student, I walk into the room and I'll have a conversation with the staff and we'll move that patient to a room where the voice is not as pronounced. Going over the specifics of bias, whether it's racial or it's gender, and sometimes in the setting of the, of the emergency room, when the hospital is busy, your room is packed, you can provide a couple words, but I don't know how much you're going to get out of that. And it's extremely disappointing if you walk in with a goal of, hey, you're using this type of language. I'm going to have this conversation with you and it's going to change everything. It's not. You can communicate. I'll say, hey, that language is inappropriate and not accepted, period. But nine times out of 10, most people know that. 
I've never had anyone say, I never knew until now that I couldn't use that language. They're using that for a specific reason. So in that context, I'll have a very professional conversation. My name is Christopher Colbert, X, Y, and Z. This is what we will not accept in this room. You will not communicate with staff, myself, or in any capacity in the way that you're delivering this. And if that's just not honored, then you have to take the patient to a different room. And if, if it escalates, then there's chemical sedation as well. But I don't just walk into a room because you've used certain language I don't believe and you're getting five and two. I may think it, but I don't do it. I'll have a conversation. We can, we can adjust you know, your position and then just go from there. And what I've also done is I've communicated to staff so this patient's information is recorded so that this doesn't come back again. And if you, this individual does come back, because this thing extends not just in conversation, but just inappropriate groping of nurses or staff, don't want you back. And we need to make certain policies so that behavior is not accepted and that everyone is aware that this individual, in fact, has known for this behavior. Chris, I think that's such an important point. You're not going to change the way the person feels deep inside, but you can set rules for engagement and expectations for their clinical encounter, which is that we need to be respectful and that certain activities and certain behaviors are not going to be tolerated. If you want to seek medical care from me and from this department, this is how you need to behave. And I think that's a very real and realistic conversation to have with people. If they're not willing to engage in that way, then they go down one or two paths. They can either leave if that's appropriate for them to do, or like you said, that maybe gets escalated into medical management of their um, unfortunate behavior. M Molly, what's your take? I agree. And I think that my approach is probably very similar to Chris's in the sense that it begins with a conversation with very, very firm boundary lines. Um, I'm actually extremely lucky. My hospital has a very clearly worded zero tolerance policy for any type of verbal, physical, et cetera, et cetera, um, abusive language, what have you, we will not tolerate it. And it's nice to be able to walk into a patient's room knowing that not only is this the policy of me personally and my department, but also my the entirety of my hospital entity. So walking into the room um, and laying some very clear boundaries, this will not be tolerated. You cannot use that language. You are here not as a paying customer for your services, but you are here as a patient. And if you do not comply with the rules and regulations of my department and my hospital, then you will be asked to leave. And I think that the hard part of this entire situation comes when the patient has legitimate medical problems. If they're drunk, intoxicated, and they're mouthing off and being belligerent, and you can't reason with them, eh, side issue, put them in a locked room, or not a locked room, <laughs> put them in a room where the door so, can sometimes close. Sometimes a locked room. Sometimes a locked room. You can use some of that chemical sedation if they're starting to border on the line of imminent danger to themselves or others. But for the completely sober individual who's just a horrible human being who legitimately might have some medical problems, that's where I personally really begin to struggle. And I would love to be able to sit here and say that I have a very clear approach to every single one of these patients, but I don't. I think that it varies heavily based off of the patient themselves, the particular situation, uh, my nursing and staff that's involved at that particular moment. And I think that for those patients, the ones who legitimately might have an aortic dissection, who have swastika tattooed all over them, who are refusing care from multiple individuals within the department, then it really becomes a discussion with your staff and with your team about how we're best going to go about making sure that this person has appropriate medical care, 
that at the same time do not invalidate our moral ethics on how appropriate conduct within our department should be. Yeah, for sure. And Molly, that's some great insight and Chris as well. And you alluded to something that I was uh, thinking of as you guys were giving the example. And, and that is we feel much more empowered to act, I think, when it is just a flagrant ism, right? When somebody uses an inappropriate word, inappropriate for any age of anybody, or just inappropriate body language or tone or physical aggression. And when it's really flagrant, most of the time it gets called out. Although sometimes we do couch things in, that's just how they are. That's just the cost of doing business. They're just drunk. It's okay. Uh, when we know it's not. But I find myself particularly being challenged by the isms where you're not quite sure. It's a little more ambiguous behavior. And I think that's where I struggle the most. And I have the most fear. You know, you you have a fear of, wait, I, did I just hear you say that? And what was the context around that? Like, were you guys just having a banter and that was just, uh, I came in on the wrong part of that discussion because everybody looks like they're smiling and happy? Or, or was this something that isn't really there and should be addressed and should be called out? And what's going to happen if I look, if I do that? Like, how am I going to look and how I'm going to feel and how to make the other person feel? And that's where I find that I struggle uh, a lot. I couldn't agree more. And it's also even harder when it's not the patient, but your own staff. And then you are bad-mouthing the team and you're the horrible mean doctor who's, you know, interrupting with everybody's fun. That's another particularly difficult situation that we oftentimes will find ourselves in. Why yeah. I interject with this really good, good conversation right now? One thing I, I would like to say is that if any of us were at home and we let our dog out at three o'clock in the morning to use the restroom and there was someone in our front yard taking a healthy leak for a good five, 10 minutes, and you walked in your front yard and they said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm just drunk. None of us would say, oh, well, that's okay because you're intoxicated. Please keep this in mind as staff members working with other individuals who are who could be in the isms because there's, there's nothing more discerning when I have a staff member say, oh, well, Chris, he's just drunk. Oh, well, that means that's just that less meaning to me than if, you know, it's, it's even if they're drunk, even if they're intoxicated, those words have a specific meaning toward that specific audience. And mind you, we use it, and I say it as well, but you know, well, yeah, they're drunk. We always say the person is drunk. That doesn't mean those words mean any less to the individual that it was sent to. So don't dismiss or even worse, engage in conversation with individuals and say, hey, don't worry, they're drunk. That is, um, there's better ways to address it. Even though you're acknowledging and saying, hey, that's still inappropriate. Maybe the words saying, ah, they're drunk, it's okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's not okay. And it's so hard with our staff. I agree completely that we can't allow it to happen, but there is that part of emergency medicine where we have to vent and we kind of have to vent quickly and get things off our chest. And, and we, we say things in a crass manner as if we're brushing it off our shoulders, sometimes because we, we have to just not process with, with, with whatever we just dealt with. But when we cross the line, and when our staff cross the line, we're in trouble. And so since you brought it up, what's one of the mechanisms to address this with staff? I mean, in patients, we try to redirect them, set the ground rules for engagement. And if not, we can kind of escalate as, as necessary. But it's a different conversation when we're talking to our staff directly. H how do we redirect them 
so that the isms don't continue, one, to compromise patient care, but even compromise interstaff relationship? There's a couple of different techniques that can be taught and you can learn and there are classes that you can take on it. There's also that human reaction. But I, I will tell you that the, the first thing that I've found is that oftentimes, because I'm guilty of this as well, right? I've said things before and I'm ever trying to grow and learn. And I've said things before, purely in my head, joking that if you're the recipient of that, maybe that maybe it didn't feel right to you, right? And so I always appreciate it, A, when someone will pull me aside and let me know so that I can, I can know better and do better. But the second part of that is I turn it around because I generally know what I'm doing. And I'll just pull the person aside and say, hey, I know what you said was probably just blowing off some steam or meant to be funny or whatever, but I've seen this happen to people. Or I noticed that the tech that was in the room looked really upset after you said that. And I don't think you were trying to hurt their feelings, but I think maybe it came across the wrong way. And I found that with staff, that invariably prompts them to, to go, they go fix it themselves. There's nothing else that needs to be done beyond just the recognition because you're exactly right, Drew. It's generally a, it's a stress reaction. It's, it was a busy day. It was a busy shift. Something got under your skin, your home life, the patient, the charting, the lack of staff, whatever, donning and doffing. Yeah. That's one technique I'll use. I think I'm going to agree with, with, with John, the fact that it's just helping people identify it. I kind of feel like so many times when I've done this, it's everybody needs that kind of check yourself before you wreck yourself moment where it's like somebody grabs you and says, Hey, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. But, and having done that numerous times, it works very, very well in terms of helping other staff with that. Now we do have a question real quick. If you guys are okay with trying to get one from the audience, you guys okay if we go, go after it. Yeah. So it's at what point do you comply with a patient requesting a different provider for inappropriate reasons? And I think we've all been here. We've all either seen this or been a part of it. How do you guys go about that? If I have the ability to switch, I switch. The shift is too long, it's too busy. And in the context of someone saying, I don't want X, Y, and Z, we're already setting the stage for that conversation with that specific patient. I mean, with that physician or provider. And in the grand scheme of things, that makes that individual who's in that shop at that time, whether it's a nurse or a physician, dread going to that room to having this really confrontational conversation all the time or checking or just reevaluating the patient in the grand scheme of things, in my opinion, in my experience, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You're not going to beat racism on your shift. It's just not going to happen. And so if I have a patient say, I don't want this patient because he looks like X, Y, and Z, that's inappropriate. I may communicate with that staff member and said, this is what the patient said in room so-and-so-and-so. Do you feel like doing this today? Because that's an, in essence, that's what you're asking. You're asking staff to deal with being belittled, going back and forth, and the whole stuff during their shift. Now, if they say, yeah, I'll do it, that's fine. But sometimes I'm like, I'm not doing that today. Yeah. This, this isn't the shift where I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I think that the only time that I will not seriously consider complying is when is for the ism of I'm at a teaching hospital, but I don't want to be seen by a student or a resident. And that's a pretty hard line for me um, as an educator, as clinical faculty. You came to a teaching hospital, like you are, you are going to be seen by multiple levels of trainees. And that's part and parcel of 
having your care here. And I'll usually, if a resident or a student comes back to me and they're saying, you know, the patient's refusing to speak to me because I'm a trainee, I'll usually go with the trainee to the patient and say, no, you, you will be interviewed. And then I'll usually just stand there as they complete their interview so that two things. One, the trainees always have to feel like we've got their, their backs. We do. Like that is the whole point. We've all been there. We all had to go through the education process ourselves. We've all had that happen to us in the past too. But two, so that the patient also knows that this is not really a reasonable request for the hospital that they showed up at. Again, they can't dictate the type of service they have. It's not a service industry in the sense that you can go to a restaurant and order up, you know, a side of eggs over easy. I love the tie in there, but I think it's a valid point though. Cause Molly, I love it. How you have to validate the, the affected party, right? So if it's not you, if it's a nurse, if it's a medical student, if it's a tech, they need to know that you've got their back. But I think not very different from what Chris said. There are so many times where I'll go to them and say, Hey, the patient has an issue with you. You need to know that. I don't think that's cool. I don't agree with it, but I want you to be honest with me. Do you want to deal with this today? And if they don't, we just make a swap. One, it makes it uncomfortable, but then it's, and if it's me, like if they have an issue being seen by a male, which I think male physicians across the country deal with that on a, not a regular basis, but enough to where I get where they're coming from. It's going to make every conversation we have awkward. It's going to make my decision-making for that patient awkward. It's going to make me rethink, man, am I going to go do that pelvic on a female patient who doesn't want to get seen by a guy? You know what? I'll skip it today. And then I'm going to miss something. And so to me, it's the, you validate that it's a thing. You validate that it's wrong, but then you do what's best for the patient, which sometimes is just changing. And Chris, your, your point is so very important. Everybody comes to work with their bucket of energy. And when you force a provider, you, when you force your kind of own intent of how bad you hate that it's happening, but you you're forcing it through an intermediary, you're making that nurse, you're making that resident, you're making that other person handle that. And maybe they don't have that bucket of energy left anymore. And you're just, you're scooping out their last little bit. And that's, that's what they need to get through the shift or the rest of the day. I really appreciate that. I think it's such an important thing to, to call out and recognize and give yourself grace because sometimes you don't have the bucket of energy to deal with that nonsense today either. And sometimes you don't have a, a choice and that's why we train hard to become amazing ER physicians. But sometimes you've got another partner working there or an APP that can see that patient and, and help you do what you need to do to be well. Molly and Chris, thank you so much for joining us for this first part of the conversation and introducing the idea of isms and how we deal with this in the emergency department. We're going to talk about this again in the next segment, but talk about maybe isms a little more globally and how they affect medicine. Well, there you have it, folks. Isms Part 1 with special guests Molly Estes and Chris Colbert. Be sure to check out Isms Part 2, which will be coming out in December with special guests Tarlin Hedaiti and George Willis, again with Drew, myself, and John Casey. And also don't forget to head on over to our social media platforms at EMOverEasy, both on Instagram and Twitter and EMOverEasy on Facebook. Until next time, guys, thanks so much. Thanks so much.